Oh, and welcome to a hoon of gallery wonks. I'm Bernard Hickey, and this is a podcast on the Kaka, uh, welcoming in Janae Tibshraini from interest.co.nz. Hello, Bernard. How's it going? Yeah, good, thanks. Fantastic to be here on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> Looking forward to a, a bit of a quiet time in the next few days, I think, because the last week's been pretty busy on the macroeconomic front uh, in particular. Uh, for the first time in nearly four months, the Reserve Bank's come out and done some stuff and said some stuff and responded to the big changes that have happened in our economy and the rest of the world over the last four months. Quite a big gap. I, re- I remember the days when, when there used to be uh, December monetary policy decisions and sometimes in late January, but now it's all done in late February. So we saw the monetary policy statement from the Reserve Bank and its new forecasts and, of course, its decision, which was to put up the official cash rate by 0.25 of a percent to 1% and to announce that it would buy, sorry, sell back $5 billion worth of government bonds per year over the next five or six years before the whole thing was whittled down to not much. Um, firstly, the 25 basis points, the one sort of uh, shock horror, um, oh, look at that, was was the comment from the Monetary Policy Committee that they almost went to 50. It was a finely balanced decision, they said. Um, what did you think of that 25 or 50 and how the Reserve Bank communicated that? Yeah, I mean, that was the debate going into it was, uh, will they go 25 or will they go 50? And uh, one of the arguments for 50 was that obviously inflation is running very hot. It's nearly 6%, which is well outside of the the bank's 1% to 3% target range. Um, And it's been, as you said, Bernard, a long time since they last reviewed it. So there was an argument maybe it it could just go 50. an argument against that, though, was that we've got Omicron, which is, you know, just taking off in New Zealand. It's, there's uncertainty around that. Although on the, on the other side of that, and a side effect of this virus actually at the moment is that it could, uh, you know, put more pressure on those supply constraints, which could actually be inflationary, stop people from going to work. So there's... Few different. Uh, there are other factors too. Another factor for it to not go 50 was that the market had already priced in, um, started tightening things and pricing in higher rates anyway. So there was the question: Did it need to go 50, or was the market doing the work for the bank, as it was? Um, but as for the tone of the statement. People thought it was quite hawkish, so they thought, hey, the Reserve Bank is actually pretty concerned now about inflation. Like, there's no denying it. It is now worried. Yeah, they actually, you know, the headline for the statement was tightening needed. Yes. And um, for those of us who've been following the Reserve Bank for a couple of decades uh, and having seen, you know, for the last hike was 2014, so this is... Uh, you know, the, the last series of hikes we had was, uh, you know, a good eight years ago. <laughs> That's quite some time. Mm. And the tone has really changed. They're really worried about inflation, particularly inflation expectations. With, uh, you know, one, two years out, people are well outside the band now and their expectations of inflation. Even getting five and ten years out, people are starting to lose their anchors, which (laughs) makes the Reserve Bank uh, nervous. Yeah, and And, and actually on that, the bank even said that up until now, well, recently it said it just wants to increase the OCR in increments, you know, 25 points per time, just sort of, you know, steady as she goes. Whereas in this statement, it said actually 50 points is a possibility uh, for the future uh, 
didn't use those words exactly, but it, it did um, make it pretty clear that we, we should expect, I think, a 50-point hike soon. At, at some point, yeah. yeah. And I see some of the economists are saying, starting to speculate it could be in the May monetary policy statement, depending on what happens with inflation. Mind you, all of this was on Wednesday, and since then, uh, the worst war in Europe since 1945 broke out. So um, it's it's a tough time to be picking what's uh, happening with the economy, and as they say, it's all data-dependent. Mm. Um, but I, I also was very interested in the decision the Reserve Bank made, or made around its uh, so-called QT, quantitative tightening, the reverse of quantitative easing. So... That money that was um, created to buy the government bonds, $55 billion worth in 2020, in the first half of 2021, we knew they were going to say something and there was some debate about whether they just let the bonds roll down naturally. Obviously, those bonds are going to mature at some point, uh, but some of them were quite long-term bonds, 10, 20-year bonds. Mm. So if the Reserve Bank had said, right, we're just going to sit on these things, we're just going to wait for them to you know, dribble away, so to speak, that's quite a very long period. But they have given some certainty by saying, we're going to sell $5 billion of these back, not into the market, but directly to the debt management office, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. So what, what, what did you think of that $5 billion and and also the reassurance that we got from the Reserve Bank governor that um, – that's it. We're not going to use it as some sort of additional tweaking tool for monetary policy. It's going to be $5 billion until until they're gone. Mm, yeah, this was really interesting. And um, there were some strategists who were expecting the bank to make this um, announcement as it did. So not, not unexpected uh, for people who were watching it. But this, this, sort of, this issue is quite confusing. So just bear with me for a second as I'll try to explain it. But the reason the Reserve Bank wants to get rid of all these bonds, which is government debt that it's bought, is because it wants to clear the deck so that should it Want, should there be another crisis in the future and should it want to intervene in the bond market really heavily as it did with COVID, um, it will be difficult for it to do it now if it already has a massive bond holdings, massive holdings of bonds, because if it was to buy another $54 billion worth of bonds, it means that bank would be a massive player in the bond market. So this is its argument. Bernard's looking like no, he might not be agreeing. But so it wants to uh, clear the decks to, to um, you know, give itself the ability to use bond buying in the future. Right, but now if Treasury is to buy the bonds, it might not have enough cash sitting there to, uh, just ready to, to buy them. So now this is the funny thing. Treasury might need to go borrow more money to buy the bonds from the Reserve Bank. <laughs> right? So issue new bonds. Issue new bonds. To pay for the old bonds. To pay for the old bonds. And so Treasury is going to update its um, forecast debt issuance program at the budget in May. So then we will know exactly how much more Treasury might need to borrow. Mind you, since uh, the last update for the Debt Management Office's uh, Treasury uh, or the Treasury's program for borrowing, which was at the half-yearly economic and fiscal update in early December, uh, since then, the government's books have been looking pretty healthy. The money's been flying into the into the IRD, and actually, the government's running a couple of billion ahead of the mm. um, uh, expectations. So, you could get to the point come May, if the economy keeps going as it is, where in effect the bond program doesn't change at all. 
Yeah, and I mean that that is a possibility, but it's worth noting that already the amount of um, debt that we're issuing is much more than we thought would be issuing at this point before COVID. So before COVID came along, Treasury forecasts that in the the year to June 2023 um, that we'd issue eight billion dollars of bonds. Last year they. Um, you know, COVID came along and, and now we think it's actually going to be $18 billion of bonds. And now Treasury is going to have to find an extra $5 billion each year to buy these bonds back. So even if it sticks with $18 billion and doesn't, you know, have to increase it by 5 because the economy is performing quite well, it's still quite a lot more debt than, you know, was the normal amount yeah. back, in, back in the pre-COVID yeah, days. Yeah, the bond market can handle it though. And yeah. actually what was interesting, I thought in the last week or so, was um, one of the big uh, uh, index companies, I think Morgan Stanley, um, was about to include New Zealand bonds, government bonds, into one of its global bond indices, indices mm. which um, for those who think we're getting right into the weeds of the bond market, <laughs> and we are uh, for fun, uh, that is actually quite an important thing because what it means is that if you're a big bond fund manager in Zurich or London or New York, in many ways, you are told what to do by the mandate that your fund has. Now, sometimes the fund will say you can only buy the highest quality bonds with the most liquid markets. And the way we determine that is it's in the Morgan Stanley Capital Index for you know global developed market bonds. Well, in the last couple of weeks, um, the, uh, the index... Uh, the index group was going to um, in- include New Zealand in that, which would mean there'd be a whole lot more buying demand <laughs> from from pension funds who need to um, say do what the index builder is telling them. And so the decision by the Reserve Bank to sell those bonds direct back to the Treasury effectively means that some of those bonds that were in circulation and now are not going to be in circulation – and that means it's less likely that we would be included in that index, which means that um, uh, we're not going to get that demand from those index huggers that we would have gotten. So the, the point I'm trying to raise here is actually it's it could be a good thing for those bonds to be out there in the market and that um, there isn't a shortage of demand really for New Zealand government mm-hmm. bonds. Uh, sure, it's all going to play out in the price that uh, gets charged, but um, uh, it is interesting they've that they are trying to uh, whittle down their their holding of bonds. Meanwhile, just on just on that, um, the reason that they are selling these bonds back to the treasury, not back into the market, is because when they did this program at the start, they agreed with the government that this is what they would do because they were worried that if the Reserve Bank sold the bonds back to the market and at the same time the Treasury was issuing its bonds into the market, it might um, the, the two programs might get confused or they might uh, distort the market or something. You, you, you don't think that – what, what you're saying is you don't think that would have happened. Um, yeah, no, there is a risk there that effectively Treasury and Reserve Bank were um, – tripping over each other, mm. getting into the, in and out of the bond market. So that's a risk. So it's good that they're coordinated. What I'm s- suggesting is that there is no shortage of demand for, for government for bonds. Yeah. And even if, <clears throat> even if the uh, DMO has to issue $5 billion to offset the $5 billion they're buying back from the Reserve Bank, to give you an idea, uh, according to this uh, change in the FTSE Russell um, index, 
the World Government Bond Index. Uh, there's $3 trillion worth of demand for these bonds. And um, because the New Zealand bond market has gotten bigger, i.e. New Zealand's borrowing more, um, and the overall political message you'd hear from everyone is, that, you know, we're borrowing more money than we can afford and it's going to mean we're going to have to pay increase our tax rates down the line and the young are going to have to pay for it. Well, actually, what the bond markets are saying is please issue more of your bonds. Please borrow more money off us and uh, then you can get into this big bond de- index and um, and then you'll get uh, an extra $3 billion worth of uh, bond buying. Between 3 and $7 billion was the estimate of suddenly a whole bunch of new bond funds who could could finally buy New Zealand bonds because we had enough liquidity in the market. Right. So um, I, I'm I'm on the camp that um, the Reserve Bank shouldn't have uh, shouldn't need to worry too much, and neither should the government about um, uh, having to take some of those bonds out of the market. There's m- m- a huge amount of demand, and uh, if anything, we should be issuing a lot more. But that's that's my particular view. That's that's Bernard's view, and the, the view that would be a different view to that um, is that then we've got higher interest costs that the taxpayer will need to pay, especially in a um, rising interest rate environment. Yeah, I'm just playing devil's advocate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, and you're right. Um, but maybe we need higher interest rates. Mm. Yes. Just one more thing on this whole bond buying thing. The um, the other interesting thing is the side effect of this. Um, the Reserve Bank selling the bonds is that it might put some upward pressure on longer term interest rates. Good. And this is the thing, yeah, and that aligns with what the Reserve Bank's trying to achieve, yeah, right? It yeah. wants interest rates to be higher to curb inflation, but there's still a question mark over how much of an impact the sales will have on interest rates. The Reserve Bank acknowledges that it, it might have a bit of an effect, but it doesn't think it will have too much of an effect. So it still thinks that we should keep an eye on the OCR, which it thinks is going to get up to, is it 4 by 2025, which is, um, you know, a wee bit higher than it is now, quite a bit higher, Um, but not look at the spawn buying thing and, and, um, you know, think that it will have too much of an influence on interest rates. Yeah, because it can really unsettle people, this uh, idea of quantitative tightening. When the US Federal Reserve tried to do it in 2013, we had what we we all know now as the taper tantrum. This is where the Fed said, right, we're going to unwind this big bond portfolio we've got. And the market said, oh, no, that's suddenly going to push up interest rates and that makes us really nervous. And there was a big drop in markets and the Fed said, oh, OK, um, we don't want to upset you too much, so we won't do that anymore. Uh, and um, I can see why the Reserve Bank wants to give some certainty mm. about how it's going to wind it down. And obviously it doesn't like owning these bonds. Uh, um there's a part of me that says, well, you should just um, cancel them then, just rip them up. <laughs> I mean, or it could just keep them, keep them on its balance sheet and let them roll off when they mm. mature. The last ones will mature in uh, 2041, I think it is, um, as opposed to trying to get rid of them. But it, it, and it's also this interesting dynamic between the Reserve Bank and Treasury because I wonder, they've obviously agreed to this, but I wonder what Treasury thinks because it, it might be thinking, bloody hell, Reserve Bank, just because you want to clear your balance sheet means we now have to go issue more debt. Mm, yeah, no. Anyway. I mean, I can. I, I'm sure they're working together, and uh, on the monetary policy committee is uh, the treasury uh, uh, secretary. I think is uh, Carolee McLeish uh, on the no, MPC. I, no, I don't think it's Carolee. I think it's someone else. Yeah, there's someone from <laughs> Treasury on from, there, so yeah. they, they should be working reasonably closely together. <laughs> the other um, interesting aspect of this is the um, speech. 
on Friday morning by Reserve Bank Governor Adrian Orr, who really sort of gave, gave us a warmed-up version of what was said in the monetary policy statement. But the little kicker at the end was that um, the Reserve Bank's going to do a review of how it's operating monetary policy. Now, it's painted this as uh, a perfectly natural, normal thing to do that we have to do every five years, and that's what the, the, uh, the, the law says we're supposed to do. But in our process of, a, of the review, we're going to have a look at uh, how well we did, but also you know, what impact we've had on uh, wealth distribution. And um, this, for me, is the first time the Reserve Bank has acknowledged that there might have been an issue here with widening inequality and uh, the Reserve Bank being responsible, at least partly, for that monetary, for that uh, big rise in house prices. The uh, Reserve Bank, though, has been uh, very adamant that actually, no, this, the, the main reason for the rise in house prices from lower interest rates is not us, we, it's just the global fall in interest rates and we're very much a marginal player at the, at the edge. It's quite hard to tell that to a first home buyer though who's just seen prices jump 40% in two years because the Reserve Bank printed $55 billion and slashed interest rates to naught and removed the LVR restrictions to use the wealth effect to get the economy going during COVID. So um, what did you think of that speech today from Adrian Orr? Yeah, it was interesting and it raises questions around um, this review. Now, people might think a review sounds boring, but when it comes to central banking, the tiniest change in the central bank's mandate or the tiniest change of wording can have a really big effect. So people will... Uh, be aware that a few years ago the Reserve Bank was made to target employment as well as inflation. Uh, and it's really hard to know, you know, whether it would have cut interest rates by less if it didn't have to target employment. Some people think it, it wouldn't have cut them as much. Um, and, and some people think it's, it, it cut them too much because it was also trying to target employment. It's, it's impossible to really separate that out and, and to know what effect it had. But they've said that um, this review will be an opportunity to consider how the Reserve Bank balances our inflation and, and employment obje- objectives. So that's an interesting statement, really, to see if um, you know the employment should be given a different weighting in the decision-making criteria to inflation. Yeah. If it's they changed fairly... that, it would be a really big deal. Yeah, and we know that the National Party has said they would get rid of that employment mandate Yes, and return the Reserve Bank Act to the purity of being a pure inflation targeter. Uh, I, I actually don't think that that employment mandate has made that much difference to how the Reserve Bank does, does things any more than a change of leadership mm. because the way that they operate the... Uh, monetary policy um, committee and the the targets they have, which are to keep inflation around two percent and within the one to three percent band over the medium term, has so many uh, so much fudginess uh, that you can uh, and there's so much going on in the economy you can't really blame them for for trying to fine tune things too much when it's all changing in front of you. Uh, but uh, the way that monetary policy operates is to say you get the economy running to capacity and capacity means a level of unemployment where you're not accelerating inflation, so the Nairu is, as they call it, and uh, no one will say exactly what the Nairu is and there's an argument that it's actually fallen over the last few years but the Reserve Bank simply needs to get to full employment and uh, and then start tightening 
monetary policy to ensure inflation doesn't get out of control. So in a way, it has to get to full employment anyway. And, mm. and this little line on the side, which is to contribute to help to get to maximum sustainable <laughs> employment, it's just the same thing as, well, we've got to find the Nairu, get there, and then start putting up interest rates. Mm, that's a good point, actually, Bernard. And, um, and that the difference might actually be more in the leadership um, yeah, or, I mean, often, the, the, op- I mean, it is a committee decision, but yeah, the and there is on that committee. There is a, a lot of um, leeway that yeah. the bank has. To give you an, an example, in in this week's monetary policy statement, I always go to the forecasts for uh, particularly inflation and for the official cash rate to understand where the wiggle room was for the Reserve Bank in making their decision about the official cash rate. Because my understanding of how they do this is. They look at the latest uh, numbers, they plug them into their model, and uh, they put the various scenarios in front of the Monetary Policy Committee with the various tweaks of the main tool. So what would inflation be if we left the official cash rate at 0.75%? What would it be if we put it up to 1.25%? And literally, it's just plug the different numbers in and see what comes out at the end. And what you're really uh, able to, to do in that process is decide when you want inflation to be back down to around 2%. Well, in this set of forecasts, the uh, official cash rate was put up 25 basis points, and almost magically, the result was that the inflation rate goes down to 2% in the final quarter of the forecast period, which is 2025. Now, you could say if they wanted to bring inflation back down to 2% faster than 2025, then they would have put up the official cash rate by more. But because they have this wiggle room about when, how long the medium term is, mm. and uh, what is it 1% or 3%, or is it 2%? Uh, these things matter, and where you want to have your line end up with is a factor in what you decide the official cash rate could be. So legitimately, a more hawkish governor could have said this week, uh, or argued to the Monetary Policy Committee, that um, actually we want inflation to get back to 2% faster mm. than 2025. So that means we're going to have to be more aggressive with the official cash rate. So we'll do 50 now and another 50 in the next, next few weeks, or the next, in the next six weeks. And uh, we're really crunched down on the economy because we're really worried about those inflation expectations. Another governor might say, well, actually, um, I think my vibe is that inflation expectations will come back down again pretty quickly when things come off the boil. So I don't think we need to worry about it too much. I have the fig leaf of getting the official cash, getting uh, the inflation rate back down to 2% within the forecast period. So Mm. I've done my job. And so there is a lot of leeway in there from a Reserve Bank governor. I actually think it's more important than what, uh, whether or not there's an, an, an employment mandate in there. But you, you were saying that the Monetary Policy Committee um, has seen a few, well, maybe not changes, but some little bits of debate around that. Yeah, so the committee has seven members. Three of, oh, sorry, four of the members are people who already work at the Reserve Bank, including the governor, and three of the mem- members are externally appointed people. The idea behind the committee is that it's the, the, the thinking is it's better to have you know many heads rather than one making such big decisions. Um, and once again, this when they changed this, this was also quite controversial. But there's been some 
debate recently because some of the uh, the terms of a couple of the external members uh, are due to expire in April, and they've actually just been reappointed the, these two members. But people in the economics community are upset because the finance minister, treasury, and the reserve bank agreed that. Uh, people who are actively doing research on monetary policy and macroeconomics should be disqualified from applying for these jobs to be on the Monetary Policy Committee. And the thinking is, so they made this decision, I think it was 2018 or 19, and the reason they were worried about conflicts of interest is what what they said. They didn't want someone um, coming in there who was known to be someone with a particular worldview in terms of their economic research, like someone who loved monetary modern monetary theory oh or something that like that. Because then the markets would have gone, oh my God, there's this person with this wild idea on the committee and, and it might sway the decisions. But now economics people are upset because, um, I mean, I know of one candidate who missed out on, on the job and they're very qualified um, and, and people are thinking, well, actually it's good to have diversity of thought, but do we not want people with specific monetary policy, research, expertise, PhDs in this thing. There are other people who will say, well, actually, no, we don't, because these sorts of people already work at the Reserve Bank, (laughs) and they provide the committee with lots of advice, and we want the people on the committee to be broad, range of people, and bringing different life experiences and all of that. I don't, I mean, I don't personally want to throw shade on anyone on the committee, but that's partly the reason I don't want to throw shade on them is because I don't know what they've been doing because mm. there's not much transparency no. in terms of uh, so what not the to, members are contributing. We're not allowed to interview them. They don't give their own speeches. Yep. We just have to trust that uh, what they wanted is reflected in the so-called minutes of the monetary policy decision, which is written very much in an anodyne uh, way by um, Reserve Bank officials. Uh, in my view, uh, the Monetary Policy Committee is a good idea if you do it the way the US Federal Reserve and the Bank of England have done it, which is where you have truly independent members of a Monetary Policy Committee who are able to do their own research, they might even have their own staff, and bring a completely different point of view and talk about that point of view in mm. public. So everyone knows that this particular member of the Monetary Policy Committee is a bit more hawkish or a bit more MMT-ish <laughs> or whatever <laughs> it is. And the markets understand that. They take that into account. They try and you know work out in their heads uh, what that might mean for the next decision. And it is transparent. But in New Zealand, simply because uh, there are so few people who, un- who aren't conflicted, this is the thing about a small country. There's only 4 million of us as opposed to 330 million in the US or um, 70 million in the UK. Uh, we don't have enough economists who are experienced enough and unconflicted enough to jump in there and do that. So they're either working for a bank or some sort of um, uh, consultancy who are doing work all over the place for all sorts of government departments and big corporates and 
you know, everyone's conflicted in New Zealand. Yeah. Well, that, that's what the uh, people are saying who are upset about this, and they're saying you just have to manage that conflict of interest. Another criticism that um, John McDermott made, he's someone who does have a PhD from one of the big overseas universities, I can't remember which one now, he's at Motu Research now, and I think he used to be the chief economist at the Reserve Bank, yes. someone who's immensely qualified in this area. He made the comment that he disagreed that these external committee members were part-time jobs. Um, because he thinks they should be full-time jobs, which I agree with, really. Like, this is a very, very important role, and he made the point that you really do have to keep on top of all the data as it's coming in, constantly monitoring the situation. And and once again, it's not the fault of these members, it's potentially the fault of the design of this whole thing. Where, as you're saying, Bernard, you either, if you're going to have a committee, do it properly and actually have true diversity, or just maybe don't do it at all. Yeah, I mean, my, I my view is New Zealand's too small to have a truly independent monetary policy committee. Or if you're going to do it, uh, make sure it's properly funded so that it's yeah. you know full time. And maybe they even have one or two staff to help them prepare alternative uh, um, uh, uh, forecasts and an alternative view and be able to present it. And then talk in public. There, mm. there is a real nervousness in New Zealand about having monetary policy <laughs> debates uh, in public, well, why? I mean, as long as it's uh, open to everyone, it's a fully prepared speech that all goes out to all of the um, financial wise at the same time, or it's you know it's um, available to everyone. What's the problem? Mm. We know they're not making the decision. We know that they're providing advice into the monetary policy committee. What's wrong with a good open debate? This is what mm. happens with the U.S. Federal Reserve and the Bank of England, uh, uh, and um, I'm. I've been disappointed with how the MPC has was set up and, and run. I think it's a performative exercise. Mm. It's designed to look like we've gone away from the uh, um, Don Brash, Alan Bollard, um, Graham Wheeler years where effectively one person made the decision and there was a sort of a king complex that various people had. I think if you've got uh, a reserve bank which is truly independent and is tasked with achieving a monetary policy outcome, ultimately the boss is responsible <laughs> and will make that decision. Now, uh, if you're not going to do that and you're going to have a committee instead, we'll do it properly. Mm. You know, have truly uh, experienced independent people who are resourced to be able to give an independent different view, have a vote. Publish the votes. None of this, you know, oh, the broad consensus was or there was a unanimous view or tell us what the numbers were. That's what the Fed does. And, uh, and then, we can, then we can get a sense of, you know, how much debate, how close it really was. So, mm. for example, in this week's decision, there was this line that, um, you know, it was a finely balanced decision and we really did think about going to 50. Well, who, decide, who voted for 50? I'd like, I'd yeah. like to know. Yeah. How, how close was this? Yeah. Uh, was it? No, you're right. Exactly. So, anyway, I mean, this is the sort of thing that might actually, no, it won't be. I don't know if it'll be looked at in the review. It, it probably will be, actually. So, so we'll, have, we'll see. Yeah, um, particularly because this is a relatively new thing. Mm. And, of course, when you've changed the rules for the engine room of your economic, your economy's manager, yeah, you should check to see whether the 
the brakes worked and the new gear gear stick works, you know, after after fifty thousand Ks, you know. Exactly. And I'm just coming back one more thing on this committee. Um so two of the external people have been reappointed. Now, as I said, I don't know if they're fantastic or awful. I, I, I'm assuming they're good, but I, I don't know. But um it, Possibly they might have also been reappointed because there has been a lot of change in this committee because um, we've had the Deputy Governor and the Chief Economist um, at the Reserve Bank resign in, in a very short space of time. So they're yet to appoint a permanent Chief Economist and um, someone internally, Christian Hawkesby, will take that Deputy role. But if we had the Chief Economist, the Deputy Governor leaving and two external people, that would have been four people of the seven-person committee going within about yeah. six months, a, sh- a short space of time. Particularly when the Reserve Bank has been doing so much over yep. the last couple of years. At a that, time we're facing this massive inflation challenge. Yeah, so. no, no, it's um, it's it's an interesting one. So they're going to take submissions next year and they have to come back with a, a response by uh, t- the end of 2023, I think. So for those people who have a particular view about whether the Reserve Bank was responsible for the explosion in house prices or whether uh, it's, it's um, uh, gone too hard with lots of uh, interest rate cuts and money printing and therefore created the inflation, um, get your views in there because um, the Reserve Bank is thinking about it. So that will be an interesting one. Mm. We've had a really good focus on the Reserve Bank this time, uh, Janae. It's been, um, it's been a pleasure for all those uh, wonks out there who like to think about monetary policy. We, we do. We're lucky in that we're here in the Parliamentary Press Gallery just across the road from the Reserve Bank and see how the monetary policy side of things fits in with the fiscal policy side of things. And in the last couple of weeks, we've seen the, Reserve, the government's Books look pretty healthy as well, and we're we're now on the uh, home straight towards the budget on May the sixteenth. I think it is. I shouldn't know off the top of my head. Mid May. Yes, yes. No, it's the. Uh, let me just do this right now in front of front of you. It is the nineteenth of May. Is the budget? I think that's right. Uh, yes, the 19th of May is the budget. So um, that will be an interesting one for, um, uh, for, for all of us to see how that uh, shapes up. Janae, thank you very much again for uh, being here on a gallery, a, a hoon of gallery wonks. I'm Bernard Hickey for the Kaka. It is Friday the 25th of February. Kakite anō.